Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about an uncertain future and some things that we need to look out for and be concerned about, pray about, think about what is our reaction as Christians and as people who are in favor of freedom. And to do that, I actually have an author who I know pretty well, and he has written a book recently called Seven Gray Swans, Trends That Threaten Our Financial Future. His name is Chuck Bentley, and he is the CEO of Crown Financial Ministries and the founder and executive director of the Christian Economic Forum, which is a global community of Christian leaders and experts who are passionate about advancing God-inspired solutions to the world's greatest challenges. And so the topic of today's conversation is his book, Seven Gray Swans, which has basically seven items that we need to look out for. And we're not going to cover all of them in this conversation. So you're going to have to get the book in order to uh, see what he has to say about some of these topics. But Chuck, thanks for coming on. Well, thank you, Doug. It's my privilege. I've known you for quite some time. We're, we're personal friends. So this is an extra special joy for me. Yeah, same here. I've, uh, I've been uh, wanting an excuse to have you on and family member said, hey, you, you need to read Chuck's book. I got a whole bunch of copies here. I'm like, oh, what's this? Oh, this is perfect. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at the table of contents. I look at this as universal basic income, digital currency, modern monetary theory, democratic socialism, and several others. And I'm like, wow, that's just right up our alley in terms of uh, conversation points. So we should have a good conversation here. I'm looking forward to it, Doug. I actually wasn't familiar with the term gray swan, and I was only mildly familiar with the term black swan. So I think we should probably start off with what exactly is a black swan? And then the title of your book is Seven Gray Swans. What does that actually, you know, how do those relate? Well, an economic professor that wrote the original book called The Black Swan really made that term famous. It's a term that identifies an unpredictable event that has very serious negative consequences. And because people started referring to using that term, other economists came along and said, well, not everything's a black swan. What we really need to be watching out for are the gray swans. And in contrast to the black swan, a gray swan is something you can identify. It's actually a known risk with a low probability of occurrence, and thus we tend to ignore it. And so that's what I've tried to track, Doug, is uh, the gray swans of the world. Nobody can predict the black swans, but if you can see the gray swans, let's take a look at them and be informed so that we can at least try to be prepared. How long ago did you start thinking about this and, and what was sort of your inspiration? I think I do it as a matter of personal interest, Doug. I, you know, I, I don't get paid to do this. It's not something that's sort of a job requirement of mine. I grew up reading the news. My father reads the news. I could pick up the phone and call him right now, and he could talk about any of these topics probably more in depth than I could. So it really just comes from my own personal background and interest. You know, when I was uh, in college, I didn't particularly like economics. I thought it was a boring class. It didn't seem to be relevant to me. 
But once a Grace Wand event personally affects you, which they affect us all, once they affect you and your own wallet, then mm-hmm. you start paying attention. Mm. So, you know, you recount in the introduction about thinking about economics that you were bored by it. I mean, that was partly my experience growing up until like my mid-20s was like economics was this thing about math. It was about understanding things like charts and supply and demand. It's like, why do I need to know that? I just need to, you know, learn how to do good business or learn how to do good ministry or whatever it was that, you know, we're up to. But at some point, we realized that what is happening in the economy is important to our lives, even if there's some sort of if it seems a little abstract to some extent, it's really having, you know, effects on our lives now, even if, you know, they're not going to be, you know, really damaging to us. They can affect us or those we love. Well, economics impact everything and all of our choices have some economic basis in them or some economic impact that maybe we're not even aware of. So Mm -hmm. I think it's an all-encompassing topic. It's really the study of human behavior. And when you think of it that way, it becomes a lot more interesting. In the book, I talk about my own experience where here I was in an economics course. I was planning to attend law school. I was accepted to law school. And as soon as I finished my undergrad, that's where I was headed. But my father was in the oil and gas business. And during that time, the Shah of Iran, I guess more specifically, the students that he encouraged to take over the American embassy in Tehran you know, he took the Americans captive in our embassy, and it was a world-shaking event, a gray swan event, because it was a known risk, but we thought a low probability that would ever happen. So when it did happen, President Carter imposed an oil embargo against Iran, and the price of oil just skyrocketed at the time. And my dad asked me to not go to law school and come back home and work with him, which I did. But after the hostages were released and and the embargo was lifted, the price of oil plunged and I got laid off. Mm. And so I realized the power of these gray swan events can become, they sound distant and uh, just sort of ethereal, as you said, but they can hit home pretty quick. Yeah. So of the ones that you identified in list. I read a few of them. Were they ones that you were particularly drawn to because you were interested in their topic? Or was it more like, hey, I, you know, maybe there's like a dozen, see there's seven. So maybe there was like a dozen or two. And these are the ones that are more relatable. How did you kind of pick what was on this list? Because I mean, you could pick probably another seven more, maybe. I think I could pick a hundred more, Doug. And, <laughs> and it's interesting because I don't think I've necessarily got all the gray swans we need to be looking out for, nor do I, I may not even have the best. I think what the filter that was most important to me was what I would view as a probability, something that's that's more in our minds today. You're reading more about it. It's more contemporary. Maybe it's a little bit more relevant. I tried to filter them into things that are more obvious instead of the more obscure. Yeah. So one thing that I've been kind of noticing in the past few months is this, the media, now we're recording this in February of 2021. We've just gotten through a pretty contentious and uh, dramatic election. And the corporate media is saying things about alternative media and about certain people groups in the United States with respect to their sort of tendency to believe conspiracy theories and to sort of be drawn to, I don't even know what the word is. It might be just dystopian predictions. 
you know, preppers, while I think preparation is very important, preppers have some sort of a, you know, stigmatic reputation to some extent in sort of a negative way. So as Christians, we're not supposed to be, you know, blown about by every wind of, you know, fear. But at some point, we have to decide there are certain risks that we want to be prepared for. And so how do we avoid, on the one hand, conspiracy theories and and doomsday predictions, but on the other hand, avoid just ignoring these problems altogether? I think that's a very, very good insight about this dilemma. And you you give a spectrum, I think, that's important to recall when analyzing scenarios, when doing scenario analysis. The Bible does tell us in Proverbs 27, 12, that we are to be prudent and a prudent person takes precautions. In other words, they look out over the horizon and see danger and do something about it. I think prudence is a value that we've almost lost the importance of it in our culture. Mm -hmm. When you're prudent, you don't make a hasty decision. You're not just basing something on very shallow evidence. And on the other hand, you're also not paralyzed. You're not at the mercy of your circumstances. So you do something about it. What is imprudent to me, Doug, and I think to you as well, and probably to your listeners, is buying into an unsubstantiated scenario, something that could be highly, highly questionable, which are typically the conspiracy theories. And I believe they happen to people because we have a need to make sense of our world. And we're just looking for some way to explain something that we don't understand. And so somebody comes along and floats this idea of what could have, should have, would have happened. And we simply go, aha, maybe that explains it. And that gives us a little less fear of the situation because we think we know what caused it or who's behind it or what villain is out there driving it. And I think the Bible cautions us against that. And we have to stay factual based. We have to stay grounded in the scripture to avoid vain imagination. Hmm. Yeah, I think the being drawn to finding a villain is very, well, That that's endemic right now. <laughs> you know, either whether it was Donald Trump or the Democratic Socialists or whatever, whoever was behind the so-and-so's campaign, like we want to find a villain because I think we want to have some sort of agency to sort of put blame on. And there's no doubt about that, Doug. And I think we're living in a we versus they construct. The whole world is now becoming polarized. And you can fill in the blank on who is the we and who is the they. And it doesn't matter what the topic is or the subject is. That's the construct that we're living in. Mm -hmm. And that's what's leading to cancel culture. That's what's leading to deplatforming. I think that's what's leading to a great deal of inability for our country to work together right now because we're not finding this middle ground that we're talking to other human beings that have an opinion that should be valued and listened to. And we need to use reason to come to some sort of, of means to cooperate. Otherwise, we'll end up in terrible gridlock and nothing good's going to come from that. Yeah. So are there any of these in particular that you think Christians are more susceptible to either embracing in a... An, thoughtful way? Or are they all just a general threat and that we should consider them all? Well, I think when you when you ask the question, you're the first one who's asked me that in many, 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 many interviews <laughs> I've done. I think one of them, in my opinion, Christians tend to get a little bit overly concerned about 
is the cashless society. Digital currency is here. Cryptocurrencies are here. And I'm sure we could talk about both of those issues in depth, Doug. But what I see is that Christians tend to take it sort of over the Niagara. You know, they go over the edge with that one and they get a lot of fear in spite of the evidence that it is a very slowly developing trend. The probability of being completely cashless in this country by many estimates is almost zero. I mean, some experts say it will never, ever happen here. And we use far more cash and hard currency than we recognize. A Harvard business study said that we're still using 30% of all transactions uh, are in currency and in our own Mm -hmm. hard cash. And so that one is one that is almost uh, prophetic in many people's minds, the one that they tend to know the most about or try to pay attention to. But I think they do it without the factual basis. Yeah, I remember growing up being told about this sort of prediction that, you know, one of these days we're going to have to have a mark on us that is going to be required to buy and sell. And what I, <laughs> I'm chuckling at this now, what I was taught was that you could find the number 666 in US barcodes for uh, the, oh, the, I SK, the that SKUs. Yeah. I forgot that one, yeah. <laughs> and I remember thinking, goodness gracious, like, really? Like, is it that obvious? Like, you don't these people know that a bunch of Christians are going to find them out and then, you know, do something, you know, radical? But like, I, I kind of, having grown up in that and having having seen that prediction basically not come true, it strikes me as the doomsday predictions of people like Paul Ehrlich with respect to overpopulation and climate change, yeah. you know, the disastrous climate change that was supposed to happen eight years ago, according to Al Gore. Yeah. You know, it's more like, hey, your predictions keep failing. And I didn't know, based until your book, that because I didn't have any occasion to. I'm not worried about a cashless society. But I didn't even know that the percentage was as high as 30. I would have probably said maybe 10 to 20. So that that even goes to show how uninformed I am. And I'm fairly cashless in my use of, you know, buying and selling. You know, Doug, I did an informal survey. I've got quite a few Facebook friends. And I asked them, did they think we would be completely cashless in the United States in 10 years? And it was split 50-50. And the extremes were on both ends of the spectrum. Many of the boomers, the older folks said, absolutely not. It'll never happen. It's not going to happen. And I hope I hope to the good Lord it doesn't. And on the other end of the spectrum, the younger generation, they were all saying, please, could it get here sooner? Because I am so <laughs> tired of having to carry around cash. I don't use cash. I don't want cash. The sooner, the better. And so yeah. there was a great deal of divide around it. And I do think it's something that the scripture points to, but it's it points to it in a mysterious way. And I think, as you pointed out, all attempts to define that or to put some sort of narrow definition around it, mm-hmm. they're, they're all in vain. I don't yeah. think we're able to do that. Well, the other thing you point out, and I, I think this is true, is that in my mind, the idea of a cashless society is mostly beneficial you know, with respect to convenience, ease of budgeting in some sense. I realize that an envelope system, there is a pain in handing over cash. That's something that can't quite be the same when you're seeing a digital account transaction just take place. But then there's those smaller bits of like, oh, well, I want a small amount of cash for this. But most, by and large, I'm really happy. And so I would probably lean, I'm kind of in the middle 
but I would kind of lean toward, yeah, I'm good if we went this way because I, I think we would adapt and, and be okay, but I just can't envision the world without any sort of paper or some sort of physical substance being used to trade. Doug, I am, I, I'm probably a little closer to being defensive about this move, meaning that I hope it doesn't happen because I think privacy and freedom are somewhat interrelated. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I note when I read the story of the, you know some brilliant capture that, that the FBI did of of a sinister criminal that was on the run, they almost immediately subpoena and access their financial transactions, and they can follow that person's every move just tracking the credit card, where they are, what they've spent, what they've done, and they can reconstruct their history through their financial transactions. And I just prefer that all those transactions remain private. Now, some mm-hmm. are going to argue that the blockchain may allow that to one day be the case, even in the digital world. But I think privacy and freedom need to be closely upheld. Well, yeah, that was actually going to be the thing I was going to say next, is that do you think that the blockchain and and more specifically any kind of cryptocurrency, would it be able to sort of have the best of both worlds. I think that's sort of one of the promises of cryptocurrency is that it can not only facilitate things like microtransactions and anonymity, but also uh, have the convenience. Well, I, I think there's no doubt about it. That's one of the primary. I would say the two primary benefits of a crypto are, are the assumption that because it is a finite currency, or not a currency, but a finite commodity is more appropriate, I think. It's a finite algorithm. (laughs) Uh, Then it supposedly will have more value than a fiat currency that the profligate spenders print too much of. One of the limitations of that is it doesn't make for a very good currency when it can't expand with demand and therefore price fluctuates uh, Mm -hmm. wildly. So it's very difficult to price goods in in a crypto because of you don't know what's going to really cost you from one minute to the next. I think secondly, the idea that it's totally private is only good so long as governments do not intervene and start to create policy around it. And I think that is inevitable. Mm-hmm. I believe central banks are going to create policy that attempt, not maybe not successfully, but they attempt to control the proliferation of that as a currency we're seeing it already. I mean, today, it's as you said, it's in February of 2021, and Janet Yellen announced that the government is going to look at issuing uh, some form of, of its own currency called, I think, digital dollars. And so that's under works. You also see an attitude being taken by, I read some of the IMF blog, and the central bankers are looking at it almost like they do the regulation of drugs, where they will make some legal and some illegal in an attempt, as I say, an attempt to try to regulate the entire uh, proliferation of them. Yeah, I think we're we're still pretty early. I mean, I know cryptocurrency has been around for about, uh, what, 12, 13 years now, but I still think we're probably in the early stages. And my adoption, in small part, by the way, my adoption and understanding of cryptocurrencies has been is still pretty much in its baby stages. So I I probably can't <laughs> debate or argue or uh, take this conversation beyond the, what we've just done here. So we probably, as I begin to explore over the next year or so, I've been kind of 
sort of trying to understand cryptocurrency a lot better. And we've had some guests on this show as well, and there's a lot of good resources out there. But we'll have to move to a different topic (laughs) based on my limitations. Plus, I want to talk about all the other topics too. So anyway, I I do that to hedge a bit toward uh, email or uh, people emailing us and saying, you know, whatever I said or Chuck said was slightly inaccurate or this or uninformed or whatever. That's fine. You can send me emails and, and point us to the right direction. The other thing has very much to do with what you just said, which is governments issuing policies about things. And I think over the past year, of course, you know, whether justified or not, I don't think it's justified, we have seen an unprecedented amount of government debt and spending because of COVID, because of just, you know, no economical moorings by either party, to be honest. And MMT or Mont, what is it? Modern Mont, I can't even say it. Modern monetary theory. Yeah, modern monetary theory is a big threat. And I've heard economists, you know, Austrian economists talk about it, but I don't really know a whole lot about what it is. Um, You know, you introduced the idea in your book. Is it really just let's print as much money as we want? It can't be that simple, or, or is it? Well, when I heard about modern monetary theory, I thought that it was sort of this loose trend that people were coming up with without very much research or support for it. I really thought it sounded so unorthodox, so ridiculous on its face value to me that people couldn't be serious. You know, maybe it was like some sort of, uh, you know, the intellectual rigor of a horoscope. And what I found out is I was wrong. There are people who are strong proponents of it. I would say even evangelists of it. And you will get attacked for disagreeing with them on any level. So you can expect if there are some that listen to your podcast, Doug, they're going to write and say that I'm out of my mind because I don't believe in it. Biggest proponent is Dr. Stephanie Kelton. She's an economics professor who wrote a book called The Deficit Myth. Mm-hmm. And she has a very simple premise in her book that deficits do not matter. They have no bearing whatsoever. If you're the issuer of a currency, and deficits uh, have no significance and they should essentially be ignored. Her thesis is that a currency issuing government is in the exact same position as the bank in the game of Monopoly. And therefore, you can just put as much money into the system as you want and accrue as many debts as you want. And all you've got to do is print, print, print without consequence. And it just sounds so ridiculous to me and so unorthodox. But she believes it. And my thesis in the book is that both sides of the government aisle right now, whether you're red or blue, believe it and are practicing it. Even though they may deny they believe it, mm-hmm. it is, the, in fact, what they are practicing. And Senator Rand Paul, in December of 2020, stood on the Senate floor and said to fellow conservative thinkers, you guys mock MMT. He used the actual terms, you mock modern monetary theory but you practice it. Hmm. little prophetic there. <laughs> yeah. You know, some people call it the, the monopoly money theory or the magic money theory. The, the strange thing, Doug, is how many people at a very high level endorse it and believe that it's good. You know, the, their justification is, is interesting. Uh, they believe that it will help close income inequality gap. They believe that it will also, um, similar to UBI, I mean, I, in my book, I say you, you've got to swallow the MMT mm-hmm. pill before you swallow the, the universal basic income pill. 
but it's all justified as a compassionate, non-humiliating means to close income inequality. I wonder if MMT has become sort of the the dominant answer to Hayek's caution that economics basically constrains our imagination to build what we want. You know, people want to build a society or create a society that has the results that they're looking for, and yet they have to deal with this thing that we call constraint, economic knowledge. And so it seems to some extent, maybe it's from a really high level, that there's this sort of justification for, well, no, we can do whatever we want as long as we are thoughtful about how we create it and as long as we as long as it's done by the currency issuing government or or something like that. It's like people are finding justifications for creating the world that they want without constraint. I think you're right about that. I think the predicament that we're in, as in the United States particularly, that it's the perspective I write from because this is where I live, but I think we're riding the back of a tiger. You know, right now it's very exciting, but it's going to be really hard to exit that tiger. You know, there's going to be negative consequences. We don't know when, where, or how, but I read a lot about this one, Doug, and I don't see any way to stop doing what we're doing. I, I don't know a way out of MMT. Mm-hmm. I just was reading Michael Burry this week. Uh, I like to keep up with Michael Burry. Dr. Michael Burry is turning rather pessimistic because he says MMT is going to lead us into hyperinflation. That's his stance. Others say inflation will be good and the government will be able to inflate its way out of this debt, similar to the way Japan has done it. There's all different views about it, but essentially we're justifying the need for it and we no one is debating should we do it or not. They're just debating on who gets the money when it's printed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty sad to me. I mean, one let me let me give you one suggestion. I don't know your organization and you don't get explicitly political, but I'll I'll say something that might be that will be a little edgy. So here here's what I think. If most Christians in the United States would take a stance against some of this, they would refuse to vote for people who practice MMT or for that matter some of the other handful of things like continuing to create wars overseas. And those politicians would change their tune within a couple elections. And they would, well, I can't say they would, they will. But the idea that Republicans mostly, for conservative Christians, tend to always vote for Republicans, tend to, because of certain other issues that are still important. But when we're on this big train that's headed toward financial collapse that will result in even bigger calamity, Sometimes we have to say, you know what? I can't be a single issue voter on this or that issue because what you're doing is you're also practicing national suicide through more money printing or more war or more whatever it might be that are outside the traditional one or two single issue voter topics. That's probably pretty controversial, but that's one thing. It's like Christians need to stop supporting people who do this stuff. I think you're right about it. I don't see that as controversial as much as uh, making common sense because economic issues that any politician has need to surface so that we understand their economic ideology or philosophy. Because in my view, they take that and make law around it. And so if you know the ideology or philosophy they hold before you elect them, then you're much more likely to get a better outcome. And too often, 
we don't drill down deep enough to understand what people really believe. I remember this very clearly, uh, listening to Donald Trump speak in 2008 and 2009 when he was not a presidential candidate. At that time, he was just commenting on the great financial crisis. And when we started quantitative easing, and look, that just came from the insight that Ben Bernanke had that liquidity is what was the great problem during the Great Depression. That that was what caused the banks to fail. And he was like, oh, we learned our lesson. We're going to provide liquidity to the banks. We're not going to let, let the banks go down, which was true. But it led to this implementation of modern monetary theory. And I remember Donald Trump pre-presidential candidacy said he had no problem with it because we had far more assets than debt. And he didn't think that debt would really matter. And I remember noting in the back of my mind, I think he's kind of an MMT person. Mm. And when we look at his presidency, I think he really, it was still of that mindset that uh, deficits don't matter. Well, I would say that everybody who's listening to this program who <laughs> listens to listens to it because they like our, our content and stuff is probably agreeing with you and me that deficits do matter. I mean, you're in the world of helping people regain financial control on a personal level. And so you probably just shake your head really hard when you hear people say stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I do because it does matter. And the Bible says that debt matters. You know, the scripture clearly records that the Lord told the Israelites that if they would obey him, follow his principles, that they would lend to many nations and borrow from none, they would be the head and not the tail. But the reverse would also be true. If you disobey the Lord and you pile up a bunch of debt, you will become the tail and not the head. And I think that's exactly where we're headed. That's why this Grace Swan is of significant importance to all of us. And as you say, ultimately comes down to one way to deal with it is to analyze what a candidate believes about economics. I think that's mm -hmm. very important, Doug. What do you say to people who say that we're just borrowing from ourselves? Like we, we're just borrowing from our own ability to produce, you know, greater and greater output or whatever it might be. It's just more like, well, we're just doing this from ourselves. Like we're not being, we're not borrowing from this other bank or whatever. That's kind of the idea that people have. It's like, well, we're just, we're just creating debt. We're, we're going to pay it back to ourselves eventually. Yeah, and, and that's that's one of the premises of MMT is that, you know, so even if you borrow from somebody else, you can just print money to pay them back, just like the bank in Monopoly. And so that's one of the reasons that people think MMT is such a, you know, a big intellectual breakthrough is that, you know, hey, we can get away with this. Here's the problem, Doug. You can only do it as long as people have confidence in your choice of currency. And when confidence is broken or lost, it destroys any currency. It doesn't matter who it is. And if the United States ever gets to the point where people no longer have confidence that their dollar is worth a dollar, it will destroy it because it's all supported only by confidence in it. And, and I believe that confidence is increased by constraint and it's decreased by the way that it, we're operating now. Many people say Bitcoin itself is nothing more than an indication of people's lack of confidence in the American government. And as the deficits increase, the price of Bitcoin will increase, that those two are interrelated. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some, some – Similar to how that. people have traditionally treated gold. 
Yeah, very much so. I look at Bitcoin as sort of a surrogate form of gold, an algorithm that tries to mimic gold. Yeah, well, you know, your confidence comment reminds me, you know, if people are confident, there needs to be constraint or the word you used earlier, which is prudence. And I don't know anybody who who views the United States government right now as being prudent. Well, the evidence indicates that we have a very serious problem. If you look at the the money supply that the Federal Reserve publishes, uh, you know, uh, uh, every quarter, the money supply is going vertical. Mm. It truly is a moonshot. I read the other day, Doug, I think the money supply has doubled in the United States since 2009. And so every time it increases like that, especially these exponential increases, it devalues. Mm-hmm. So yep. we're experiencing a steady, steady devaluation. I like to compare it to what happened in Venezuela. Today, the minimum wage, by the way, that argument would be a good one to talk about, Doug, but the minimum wage in Venezuela is 82,000 bolivar per month. And so if you multiply that by 12, a Venezuelan is a millionaire. They get more than a million bolivar per year. But if you equate it to U.S. dollars, it's about $6 a week. It's terrible wages. Oh, man, they need to raise it. Yeah, they just they need, need to raise. They, they just, just need to keep raising more. Right. Yeah. Now, touche. You've got it right. <laughs> Don't you have you have a Zimbabwe trillion dollar bill or something hanging on your wall, right? Yeah, I picked it up off the street when I was over there. In fact, it was just blowing on the ground, and I, I literally blowing on the ground because you couldn't buy toilet paper with it. I mean, toilet paper was more valuable than the currency. And it just indicates that no matter how much you print, it doesn't mean people have confidence in it or it will retain its value. I remember Milton Friedman's comment that only a government could take a useful commodity like paper and print something on it and make it worthless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's where we are. That's where we're yeah. at. Yeah, for sure. So let, let's switch gears a little bit to the, we, we talked about it a little bit um, with respect to privacy and things like that. And one of the, one of the items, one of the seven gray swans is social scoring and biometric ID. So what is social scoring? That's probably relatively new to most Americans because I think that's a sort of a relatively new system in China. So go ahead and tell us a little bit more about what that is. Well, I've traveled extensively in China, and so I like to keep up with things that are happening there. And this social scoring was the brainchild of somebody in government who said, hey, what if we just roll civic behavior into credit scoring? We've already got credit scoring in place where people have to have certain good behavior to borrow money. Why don't we add a civic dimension to that? And it originally started out that if you did something really bad, then your civic score would go down. And uh, particularly things like speaking out against the government or trying to lead a protest, things are of substance. What it's devolved into is it's devolved into absolute Orwellian control over the people. Now the citizens are complaining that if your next door neighbor's dog is barking too loud, they report you on your credit score. And your credit score gets lowered, which means your, I mean, your social score gets lowered, which means your ability to borrow money mm-hmm. is diminished, your access to travel is diminished, and you're ultimately possibly locked out of receiving any government benefits, such as a tax refund or any monthly social benefits. 
it's become what we consider the gamification of Big Brother, where now online they have absolute knowledge of your every decision, your every move, your every action. And we think, well, that could never happen here. But my thesis in the book is that it is happening in the private sector. And I, I could just go on and on with the examples. We're seeing deplatforming, canceling. The private sector is already doing it. If the driver of an Uber, who I don't even know, doesn't like me, or I say something he doesn't like, and I get a low score, and two or three of them happen to score me low, then I'm, I'm locked out of Uber. And I think it's just a matter of time until other governments start to figure out hey, that system could really work in our benefit. And if we have mm. a one-party system, if we ever have a one-party system, I see this as a foreboding danger of what could happen here. Yeah, and you know, my first response to that is, well, Uber's a private company, and of course they can do what they want and sort of set up their you know, user agreements in that way. At the same time, it seems to be I don't want to say conducive to, but it seems to sort of promote the idea that this is a good social practice, that it should be implemented on a wide variety of levels. And so people's ideas say, oh, well, you know what? That works for Uber. And look at the quality of Uber because, you know, bad drivers get voted off or, you know, bad users get voted off, so to speak. And that's sort of an emergent phenomenon. But the problem is, is that they think that that's going to apply at a larger scale rather than at the, the level of, say, you know, ride-sharing, places like Airbnb, things like that where social trust is built rather than a place that we can make it widespread. Well, if we make it widespread, it will then start to erode and be sort of a place where we can all tear each other down. Well, I think you're exactly right. I do believe that private companies should have the ability to do whatever they want. And look, we, we use all those services by clicking I agree to download the software or the app and you know, we, we've signed a contract with them. Most of us don't read those contracts, but we have a contract with them and we ascribe to them the right to do that. And my premise is the same as yours, Doug, that what can happen is if the government says, well, they're private companies and they have the right to do that and uh, nobody can stop them, that looks like a really good idea for the way the government should operate. <laughs> mm -hmm. And India is already beginning to think that way. And I think that it sets up a precedent that could be mimicked or mirrored by those in government. And it's one that I consider a low probability. That's why it's a gray swan. So one thing I haven't mentioned about this book, which I usually do at the beginning, is I actually, so we, we recently published a book, which I believe I sent you a copy of. I hope you got yes. it. I know the U.S. Postal Service is taking forever. But I thought our book was pocket-sized. Your book is truly pocket-sized. and. It's not super short, but it's short enough to like, you know, I read it in a morning. It's like 100 pages, and it literally fits in my back pocket. So this is not an extensive tome on each one of these topics, of course. So I'm encouraging our listeners to reach out and, and get one. I would like you to, in a few minutes, tell us a little bit about uh, how they can get one. But before we do that, how should Christians sort of overall respond to some of these things? Because there's a lot of fear that we could have we could, you know, hedge our bets by buying gold or crypto or just storing up. And there's all kinds of things we can do personally and financially. But in terms of our spirit toward others, in terms of our the way in which we think about politics, because, you know, those things are clearly related to what we're dealing with here. What's some advice that you give uh, people? Well, thank you, Doug, because I think that's really important. 
I, I look at finances and economics sort of in two ways. One is the temporal and the other is the eternal. And I think we put far too much emphasis on the temporal and we spend about 99% of our time making plans for the temporal, fully knowing that, you know, we're going to either, you know, we're going to time out of our existence, every single one of us. So building our kingdom or trying to make our kingdoms more secure here is somewhat of an act in futility. It's prudent, and I, I give advice on finances to, to try to be prudent as best we can. But I also think we have to transition and think about what is our eternal financial plan? I believe that we don't have to fear what happens here. We can look at it factually and objectively. We can look at it uh, rigorously and face whatever dangers we have with full assurance that we belong to the church, and the church is the only institution that Christ described as anti-fragile. Everything else is fragile. Everything else is subject to loss, decay, theft, uh, devaluation. And so we shouldn't put our identity or security there. We put it in Christ and knowing in his church and in his economy and his way of redemption that he will work all things together for our good, even our most painful, terrible losses. And it allows me to look at these things without panic I don't go into a prepping mode, Doug. I just, uh, the only thing I really try to prep for is that day when I'll stand before the Lord. And and I want to be sure that I've lived in such a way that uh, I have a higher probability of hearing him say that he's pleased with the way I live. And that means not allowing money to control all of our decisions. So where can our listeners acquire your book? Other than showing up at my house and I can give them a copy. <laughs> well, uh, it's available in ebook at Amazon.com. We have printed copies available on our website at crown.org. But it's easiest to get it at Amazon. And I would love for people to give a, uh, a review. What we've discovered is that platform is one of the best platforms for spreading the word about a book. If it climbs in ratings, then more and more readers uh, look at it. It is a short read, and I did that intentionally, Doug, because when you read about economics, oftentimes it can get really, really dry. And I just wanted to get people thinking about these issues and sort of putting them on their own radar and asking them to engage with me the way you have on your own perspective about these things and to try to be ultimately try to be aware and prepared to, to vote your uh, convictions, and also to, to guide your family in a way that you minimize the potential damage when these things come about. Well, we've covered quite a bit in this conversation, and I encourage everyone to go buy the book on Amazon, or you can go to crown.org to, to purchase it. Chuck, I really appreciate you coming on to talk about these things. It's been a great conversation, and, and uh, I'm sure I'll love to have you on in the future. Well, thank you, Doug, and I hope all the, the things that uh, were controversial, they will email you and oh, yeah. you'll take for me. All right, I'll do that. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll filter them along to you yeah. and we can talk about it. Yeah. Maybe we'll come back on and defend the position or have a, another discussion. That'd be great. I look forward to it, Doug. Keep up the good work. All right, thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.